everyone. Welcome to this Roundup. The year 2020 has brought us enormous complex challenges. It has been an uncertain and highly stressful year for everyone across nations. From the first day of this year till today, the world has faced all kinds of crises. The biggest of all, the COVID-19 pandemic and its many consequential effects have brought us all challenging moments. We have witnessed the loss of loved ones, the loss of livelihoods, the collapse of supply chains, power struggles internally and externally, and the fundamental freedoms we take for granted. It has been very difficult to bear. We have also witnessed socially unjust events, loss of trust in the systems, the horrors of social media, and have witnessed suffering on a seemingly endless chaotic news cycle. All this combined with a contested election in the United States, I think it is fair to say that 2020 has impacted and exhausted us all. The question that is on everyone's mind is what lies beyond 2020, beyond 2021? To discuss the trends beyond 2021, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Dr. Oshan Kup to this roundup. Dr. Oshan Kup is a professor at the US Army and his research publication and supervision of research interests include food and agriculture security and defense support to civil authorities, military operations. He is based in the United States. Welcome, Professor Kup. We are so honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you very much. Wonderful. So we have all suffered this year. Is there a reason for optimism as we get ready to ring in 2021? Please share your thoughts presentation. I would uh, suggest that there is reason for hope. Uh, with every challenge comes opportunities. And the opportunities may be harder to find or more difficult to engage, but there are definitely opportunities in the future. Uh, the one that I would like to speak on is uh, agriculture and our relationship with uh, China and the United States. Um, particularly wanna emphasize the point that agriculture is a strategic national security asset in the United States and that our trade with China, although problematic with the COVID-19 pandemic and with the outcomes from that, we need to engage and, and continue to engage, uh, re-engage um, China as a trading partner. Um, U.S. agriculture provides the cheapest food period and the cheapest based upon percentage of disposable income in the world. We average about 10 to 11 percent of our disposable income is used for food. In Asia and Europe, that is around 20 to 30 percent of their disposable income. Whereas in developing countries, that can be as high as 60 to 70% of the disposable income. That doesn't mean that we don't need trading partners like China to continue to grow our ability to export foods. Uh, because of the trading sectors that are traded, are tracked in the United States, agriculture is the only sector to be positive in terms of trade balance since the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration. Most of uh, our exports go to three or four countries, China being one of them. They are our third largest export partner of agricultural products, which accounted for 13.8 billion in 2019 as reported by the Foreign Agricultural Service of the USDA. 
That was up from 9.1 billion in 2018. China is also evolving demand as one of the largest agricultural import markets. They imported over 133.1 billion, surpassing the US and the European Union in 2019. One of the trends that's happening is bulk quantities of agricultural products is being replaced by consumer-oriented products uh, are surging ahead in those totals. One item I can talk about uh, with some, uh, um, one, one item I'd like to talk more about is the Hainan free trade port, which could yield future opportunities for US agricultural markets later today. Fundamentally, one thing a lot of people does not, do not understand that macro principle, macroeconomic principles of agriculture is inelastic towards supply and demand. You get to plant or start a feed animal only once. Then you are at the whims of nature, market forces, and external factors. It is not like making soap or building cars when you can start and stop production to improve pricing of the items at market. One uh, tie back to the COVID pandemic is the stimulus that was passed. Only 2.45% of the 50 billion or, or, or a total of 50 billion of the $2 trillion in stimulus actually went to farmers. That is a sector that was 15 to 17% of the pre-COVID-19 gross domestic product. Some things we do not know. We do not know what the impact will be on our agricultural sector, which is only less than 2% of our population that is in production in the future. That's why things like uh, expressing our ability to expand our export markets with China is important. One item, another item is uh, China, some numbers to, to, to express this. China is also the world's top market for dairy imports, which were valued at $12 billion in 2019. They have become a consumer of products and some of those products like finished products for consumer demand, like uh, instead of whole hogs having, um, or whole chickens, cut up chicken or cut up pork as products sent to China is gaining ground uh, along the other agricultural products that they have. Um, during 2019, the largest exports that we had were seen in soybeans and pork products. Those were up uh, 4.9 billion and 729 million respectively. In addition, we exported more tree nuts, more prepared foods, like I said before, and beef and beef products were up 278 million, 57 million, and 25 million, respectively. Now, that was all during the retaliatory tariffs that we had placed upon China so that they would become uh, a less of a, um, less of a retaliatory um, tariff-based uh, trading partner that trading partner we need to foster and nurture 
Um, we, the, the current administration basically brought them to the table based on unfair trade practices that have been going on for years and said that based upon our ability to export food to them and agricultural products, they were going to be required to do certain things. That phase one was put in place in January of that trade agreement. Some of the things they were required to do were expected to meet certain market access goals according to a timeline established in the agreement. China is supposed to be expedient and efficacy in removing structural barriers to U.S. agricultural products and their willingness to lower or waive trade imports will drive us to have more progress with them as a trading partner. That is roughly $80 billion over the next two years. At the same time, various human, animal, and plant diseases and pests will each impact Chinese demand for food and agricultural products. For a number of years, they had a different coronavirus that virtually wiped out much of their um, pork production. That's why their pork uh, imports have gone up tremendously over the last two to three years. What does that mean to the U.S. farmer? The U.S. farmer currently generates half of all of our wheat, half of all of our soybeans, 85% of our cotton, two-thirds of our rice, and one-quarter of our pork are all exported to some other country, including China. Total exports are around 152 billion. That's up 12% from the last fiscal year. The exports to China, like I said before, have gone up uh, a, a great deal. Going back to um, the, the, the Hainan, Hainan Free Trade Port. In, 20, in June of 2020, the China central government announced its economic master plan to develop the South China Island of Hainan as a free trade port. The advertised zero tariffs for imported products processed through the free trade port may lead to future opportunities for imports of U.S. ag products such as meat and seafood. However, for the time being, importers of U.S. ag pro products seem reluctant to pursue these opportunities until the free trade port policies, infrastructure, and logistic networks are solidly in place. That's another opportunity we're going to have to wait on currently that's not available to us, but is written down and is planned to actually happen. Some more details of the phase one pledge from China include its increase to purchases of U.S. goods and services. Many experts question whether China will meet its overall targets, which they haven't up to this point, but some of that is due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The report showed outstanding sales currently of U.S. corn to China at an all-time high of 8.7 million tons and soybean sales for marketing year 2021 to China were double the level seen in 2017, which is when they lost most of their pork production. 
U.S. exports of sorghum to China from January of, to August of this year totaled almost a billion dollars. U.S. exports are, are at an all-time high to China. In just the first five months of 2020, the U.S. beef and beef products exports to China through August 2020 were already more than triple the total for 2017. So fundamentally, in spite of what some people may state about the tariffs and the agreements that the current administration has put in place over the last two years, our exports in a number of areas have grown substantially with China. That needs to continue um, for no other reason than another place, another way to leverage our ability to keep them uh, in check with other trading partners to make sure that their trading practices are on the up and up or level. Finally, our food supply dependence will, will, will change based upon COVID-19. And we don't really know what the impact of the pandemic is gonna be. So engaging these opportunities like trading partners with China is one of the things that we should be doing. We need to have changes in focus to our trading partners to increase the value and net worth of our agricultural trade. Great. Uh, no, I, I think you shared some really important points. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, not, at, not at this time. No, that, that was a really good point. And especially the point that you made about China having another outbreak before COVID-19 uh, that wiped out their, you know, uh, pork supply or pork, you know, uh, within the country. That was very interesting. Can you share more information about that outbreak? What was it? Was it a viral or a bacterial outbreak? It, it was a viral outbreak. Uh, like many other foreign animal diseases, um, diseases from uh, regimes like China are not well publicized. Um, so they had an outbreak of a virus that killed uh, a, gr a large number of their pork production um, in 16 and 17. And they're just now coming back with having a uh, herd of um, a herd that's available for them to use to, to feed their own people. One other thing that's really impacted agricultural imports from the United States is the Chinese standard of living, which has increased significantly over the last 10 years. So instead of depending on soybeans or fish for protein, now they depend more and more on beef and pork products for their protein source in their diets, which has increased our ability to export to them and has increased their demand for our products. That is also the reason why the, the demand has increased for tailor-made or consumer-oriented products, cut-up chicken, pre- or post-processed pork products that they can sell directly to consumers instead of having to go through a third party where the carcass or whatever agricultural import is has to be further processed before it goes to a grocery store or wholesale outlet. 
more and more of those products are in demand because of the demand that has been generated by the increase in the standard of living in China itself. That's, that's a really good point and good information. But what I'm thinking is that what is happening in China that is leading to multiple outbreaks. If there was an outbreak in uh, before this COVID-19, that was also viral. And this is, you know, also viral based. What is going within the China's ecosystem that is triggering this virus jumping from, you know, other species to humans. That is something we will have to figure out. We will have to evaluate more in depth so that we can prevent any future outbreaks. Because if there, have, there were two outbreaks, in last few years, that is a cause of great concern. Now, the other point that you made about uh, the food, you know, uh, trade, you know, agriculture and food trade, that is something the global population, all the countries will have to very seriously think about. Because if this is becoming a trend of, you know, more and more outbreaks, and if the supply chains, you know, cannot keep up, then that is. Uh, the question that will emerge is, will we be able to feed the global population? That is a serious question that everyone needs to uh, seriously think about. The question that I was talking about, that will we have enough food to feed the entire global population in the coming years? The, uh, the big uh, concern is feeding 9 billion people projected by 2015. Uh, the, the issue is uh, in the 1970s, we had what was what is commonly referred to as the green revolution, where with fertilizer and with water, we were able to put into production large numbers of acres of fields so that we could feed the population at that moment in time because based on the last 40 years, we have virtually erased a, a large number of those that are hungry and those that are requiring micronutrients. Currently, we have about seven to 800 million people in the world that suffer, suffer from some lack of micronutrients. We have almost another billion that suffer from either lack of food or lack of clean water source, which causes disease and other issues with their health and lifespan. Um, a lot of effort is being made at the US, in the UN, and a lot of other consortiums uh, with nonprofits and non-governmental organizations to try to make sure that we feed the 9 billion people projected to be on the planet by 2050. That is um, a challenge. And I believe personally and professionally that the COVID-19 pandemic has caused us to relook our supply chains, relook at some of the things that we have done. Uh, for instance, there's an economic term called uh, oligopsony, which looks like a hourglass. So you have a large number of producers, which would be meat producers in the, and ranchers and farmers in the US who sell to meat packing plants, which is the middle of the hourglass. So very few meat packing plants in the United States. And then the bottom of the hourglass is a large number of consumers 
that actually eat meat products. The problem with that was discovered and actually showed some, some issues with that when we had meat packing plants that were closed because we did because of COVID and those ranchers and farmers, some had to euthanize their animals, some had to wait to see if the market would come back and feed animals more feed, which caused them more production costs. But that oligopsony of our meat packers in this United States is one that needs to be changed fundamentally. We need to have local um, places where people can get uh, harvest and have uh, meat sources of protein. And currently, because everything is driven by cost, that's what has consolidated the meatpacking industry into a very few numbers, both chicken, pork, and beef. That, that practices and trade is, is part of the issue that we've, uh, the infrastructure we have currently that we showed some cracks during the pandemic that need to be addressed. Not unlike some of the other trade policies that we have with other countries, uh, ability to, to market our products in other countries and having other countries, the ability to market their products in our country. Some of those trade barriers are the causes of some of the issues we have with feeding the entire global population. Some other causes are political in nature where you have some regimes that want to keep control of their population and one way to do that is through food. So, um, there's a lot of work to be done between uh, for the next 30 years. Um, but if we survive COVID-19 and all the second and third order effects of what has happened to our world, I believe we're up to the challenge to feed the population in the next 30 years. Good. I'm glad to hear that. But the point that you made about the micronutrient, I'm really happy to hear about that because nobody is talking about that. And we need to address this very, very seriously because we, even if we feed everyone, whether that food contains the micronutrients that the body needs to, for its immune system, to, for its defenses, for you know, its proper functioning, we have we are not evaluating in an ongoing basis you know we are not evaluating which communities which uh, race you know needs has what kind of deficiencies you know in micronutrients in irrespective of country once we analyze all these data and if we provide everyone the micronutrients that they need perhaps we will be able to weather any of such you know uh, pandemics or any of such outbreaks you know probably in a much you know a healthier, better way. So that's something we do need to address. And, you know, I'm really glad that you brought up that point of micronutrients because micronutrients will de determine the microflora around us and micro that microflora will play an important role in protecting us from any of the, uh, you know, pathogen that is coming our way. So that is something we do need to address. Now, other point that you made about the trade and supply chain, we know that the COVID-19 outbreak it reminds us of the fragility of some of our most basic human-made systems. Now we have witnessed the collapse of, 
you know, entire food manufacturing, production, and transportation system, you know, in very, uh, in uh, different, you know, variables across, uh, you know, nations once the COVID-19 pandemic hit everyone. So it forces us to evaluate the fundamentals on which we build systems. It forces us to understand where the vulnerabilities are and what needs to be addressed. What trends do you see to understand these gaps, vulnerability gaps, and to most important is to bring resiliency in our systems, especially for agriculture and food production. You gave a really good analysis from your perspective on uh, the politics you know, that comes into play. And there are many other reasons that comes into play, but how do we overcome all those you know, challenges? You know the vulnerabilities. How do we fix the system? Uh, fundamentally, there's probably three or four different things we need to do. The, the, the first thing is we have three or four different um, diseases that are impacting uh, food and food production around the world directly. Um, one of the issues with food is it's regional. So in Asia, they get a lot of their starch from cassava and rice. Uh, in other countries, they get their protein from soybeans. Uh, still in South America, they get um, some of their carbohydrates and some of their fruit from bananas. Well, with bananas and with cassavas and with soybeans and rice, in some areas, there are diseases that appear and are unfortunately allowed or not, not under control, so they continue to progress. Um, that's the first issue that I have that's directly tied to COVID because it's a disease and it's something that, unfortunately, we spent billions of dollars treating COVID, but we haven't spent the hundreds of millions of dollars treating some of these diseases like the coronavirus that was in China and some of these other plant diseases that do directly impact our ability to feed the world. That's first off. Second off is making it a priority throughout the world is very problematic. Once again, because of the politics, we can have a good infrastructure, we can have trading partners. Um, but as we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, for example, we had hundreds of tons of food in Somalia that tribal allegiance wouldn't allow the, the Somalis to eat back in the early 90s. That happens all over the world where political factions and tribal allegiances within a nation or a nation state or even a non-state actor gets involved with reducing or eliminating the ability of the citizen of that nation to actually get food. That's why in my initial remarks, some of the developing countries, they spend 60 to 70% of their disposable income on food, whereas we in the United States spend 10 to 11%. That's a dramatic difference in obtaining the calories necessary so that you have a sustainable life. Um, and we're not even talking about healthcare or any other issues. We're just talking about food consumption, 
and the ability to access clean water. So the first area of, of disease control is an issue, um, but it's problematic because the, the requirement to get to take care of some of these diseases is not as apparent as what we did with COVID-19, especially in this country. Secondly, is the political divisiveness of some nation states or non-state actors that impact what we could or could not do. The third is we do have aspects of climate change that are impacting our ability to produce food. And in some cases, we have depleted the soil, used up all those micronutrients in the soil, uh, planting the same food over and over or same crop over and over, and uh, do not have the ability to continue to do that with the same yields that we had 30, 40, 50 years ago. So some of our agricultural practices that we have in this nation could help other nations, but once again, it gets, uh, it has to go through a screening process of what we are, not, not necessarily what we could do, but what we are allowed to do as either a nation state or as a member of a non-governmental organization or as a member of a UN um, assistance or famine relief or um, effort that we may put into play. Yes, I, I hear you. And I think we all are, every country, what I mean is, is at a uh, very difficult moment, decisive moment, you know, how they want to go forward to meet any and all the complex challenges coming our way, not only the, this kind of outbreaks of viruses that we are witnessing and we are going through, but also the environmental challenges, also the nutri, the challenge that you talked about, about the soil, and why it's not able to grow, you know, uh, the crop, you know, again and again, perhaps it also is tied to the lack of nutrition, you know, in the soil. So maybe the soil quality in many places is uh, depletion of many of the nutrients that are essential for growing the crops, you know, properly. So there are a lot of challenges and the especially we are also facing this digital disorder. And because of the digital power play, uh, who controls what in cyberspace, the countries are all going, uh, some lot of countries are going inwards as we see globalization is uh, very fiercely resisted at the moment, even in United States, based on the election result, we can see that, you know, nationalism is on the rise, not only in United States, but in many other countries. Uh, in India and many other countries. So there are complex challenges, you know, coming our way because of the cyberspace and because of the power play and because of the, you know, space age that uh, we are almost about to embark on. So it is a very, very challenging and complex time, whether the countries will stay united in their journey, you know, uh, going forward is itself, a, you know, a big question and we will have to evaluate that. But whatever it is, we have, all to come together. The thought leaders have to come together and think about all these bigger questions coming our way because we do need to protect the future of the humanity. So thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, 
all the knowledge that you have and insights about this very crucial industry because without food, we will not be able to survive. So thank you so much for what you do, Professor Kapp, and also for participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on uh, trends in food and agriculture beyond 2021. And our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today. And as a result, this roundup dialogue has been of service. We thank you for that. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Professor Kapp. So Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community. Through the Risk Roundup initiative, Risk Group and I are on a mission to talk with a billion people, innovators, scientists, entrepreneurs, futurists, technologists, policymakers to decision makers. The reason behind this effort through the Risk Roundup initiative is to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk facing humanity. This collective intelligence effort is essential to understand where we need to focus for our collective security and what destructive forces we need to be mindful about. Thank you so much for being part of the conversation. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.